The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. In the name of giving us a, an illustration to, to begin our time, I want to make a, a confession that I, I never thought I would make standing here um, as I prepare to preach a sermon in front of you. And that confession is that I am an avid fan of the television show Big Brother. Um, I'm not sure I've talked about this before um, here, um, but I, I love the show Big Brother. Here's why. It is, it is a reality show, um, but the, 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 the reason I enjoy it so much is because there is this incredible strategy uh, game that is embedded in this reality TV show. It is, it's, it is a, a, a game of strategy that plays out over the course of usually about 100 days. And as you watch this strategy game kind of play out, you observe a lot and, and, and learn a lot about human beings. <laughs> and, and one of the things that happens a lot in this game as it plays out is that there are a lot of promises that are made. A lot of promises that are made and only a small number of promises that are kept. And so deception is, for better or for worse, is, is, is a part of this game. And so if, if you're sitting with someone and, and you're talking about the, the strategy for the game, the, someone that you're playing the game with, and they're extending promises to you, part of the Part of the game is, is being able to discern something about the character of the person extending a promise in your direction. Does that make sense? And so a, a, a promise is only as good as the character of one extending a promise. And as we open up the Bible to the third to last Psalm of Ascent, uh, the Lord is going to tell us uh, a, a little bit, uh, we're going to learn a little bit uh, about the character of the Lord our God who has made incredible promises to us in Christ and in fact has made incredible promises to his people over the course of redemptive history. And so we're going to see some of these promises play out and, and as they do, we, we are going to, we're going to catch a glimpse of the character of our God who is our great promise keeper, one uh, whose, whose word, whose promises we can trust. And as, if, if you notice as Roman was reading, uh, most of the Psalms of Ascent are rather short. Uh, this psalm of ascent is actually rather long, 18 verses long uh, specifically, and, and it's organized into two, two main sections. In this psalm, we have uh, two vows, two oaths, two promises that are made, and I, I, wonder, I wonder if you caught these as Roman was reading. The first of these two vows uh, or, or promises is a promise made by David to the Lord. Verses 1 through 10. Or as verse 2 records, a, a promise made by David to the mighty one of Jacob. The second promise then 
is a promise made by the Lord to David. And we find this promise and the contents of the promise in verses 11 through 18. Something that I I want us to see before we go too far, before we dive into these two promises, is I I want you to to see the the structure of this psalm and the relationship between these two promises. It's not just one promise followed by another promise, but these two promises are very much interrelated, interconnected, and that is made clear by the repetition, the, the repetition of various words and phrases. And, and this is something that, look, as, as we're reading our Bibles, this is something that we should be looking for. Repetition is a clue to us. It's, it's a clue that the, that the author has something that he or she wants us uh, to see or to hear. And so let's take a look at um, some of these connections between these two sections, verses 1 through 10 on the one hand, 11 through 18 on the other hand, if you're the type that, that writes in your Bibles, I would encourage you, um, these would be good things to circle with a pen or a pencil in Psalm 132, maybe even draw some arrows, some lines between uh, the two sections. And so first of all, in, uh, in verses 1 through 5 and 11 through 12, we have a connection between the two. Uh, we read in verse 2 that David swore to the Lord. And in fact, verses 1 through 5 kind of capture the content of the promise of the oath that David swore to the Lord. Now in verse 11, we read that the Lord swore to David. And we see the content of the Lord's promise in, uh, primarily in verses 11 and 12. And so the, the, the first parallel that we see between these two is, is maybe the most obvious. Uh, there, there is this phrase, swore to. We have David swearing to the Lord. We have the Lord swearing to David. Secondly, we see these two phrases, dwelling place and resting place. First of all, in verses 6 through 8, verse 7 specifically, we, we see that the, the psalmist say, let us go to his dwelling place. And then in verse 8, arise, O Lord, go to your resting place. And then in verse 13, wouldn't you know it, we read that he has desired it for his dwelling place. Verse 14, this is my resting place forever. This repetition, this, this, this matters. It's something we should pay attention to. And so we have swearing to, we have dwelling place, resting place. The, the third parallel that we'll see has to do with priests and saints. Moving on to verse 9. In verse 9, we, we read, let your priests be clothed. Let your priests be clothed and let your saints shout for joy. And then moving down, this is incredible. I think this is, this is incredible when you see these things jump out of God's word at you. Moving down to verses 15 and 16, the Lord says, Her priests I will clothe, her saints will shout for joy. And then lastly, in verse 10, we see mention of David as the anointed one. And and in verses 17 and 18, we see a corresponding mention of both David and my anointed. 
And so here we have these two promises, two promises that are very much connected with one another, very much related to one another. And so let's, let's spend some time um, dissecting these promises, taking a look at these promises. We'll do so in turn, focusing first on David's promise to the Lord in the first 10 verses. And we read this again, remember, O Lord, in David's favor, the psalmist writes, remember, O Lord, in in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. And then we read the content of David's oath. David vowed this to the Lord, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. So David is saying, I will not rest. I will not sleep, Lord, until I find a dwelling place for you. And the psalmist begins before that by making a request of the Lord. He says, O Lord, remember, remember David's hardships. Remember how he swore an oath to the Lord. Remember David's dedication and devotion to seeing this oath through. And as the psalmist makes this request to God, it would serve us to remember well also, remember, first of all, that these Psalms of Ascent, including this Psalm of Ascent, Psalm 132, these were likely sung by God's people as they made their pilgrimage back to Jerusalem for the major feasts each year. And this, this Psalm in particular, especially this first half, it would have evoked all kinds of, all kinds of memories in their minds. It would have brought to mind all kinds of, of, of shared history, shared historical context for God's people. And it's, it's important if, if this psalm would, would have brought to mind some imagery, some context for God's people then, it's important then for us to uh, to take a look at that same historical context, for us to gather some of that, that, that same shared history uh, ourselves. In the next few verses, verses 6 through 8, give us, give us a hint at uh, what, this, what these memories may have been, what this shared history may have been. The psalmist recounts, Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah, we found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. That phrase, ark of your might. This is what the psalmist is talking about here. This is what David's vow was concerning. This is what his vow is largely about, the ark. The ark of your might. The ark of your might. This is referring to the ark of the covenant. Now, the, the Ark of the Covenant, or the Ark for short, was, was of first importance for God's Old Testament people. It, it, was, it was the most sacred object they had in their possession. And it, it was a box or a chest made of acacia wood, and it was overlaid with gold. And, and inside the box were stone tablets containing the Ten Commandments. 
The lid of this box was called the mercy seat. And it was above the mercy seat that the Lord would manifest his presence. The Lord would manifest his presence above the lid, above the mercy seat, on top of the ark of the covenant. And and this ark was placed inside the tabernacle, a, a large tent, inside a a place in the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. And because this was where the Lord would manifest His presence, where He would speak to His people. This is where the the high priest would go once a year to atone for the sins of God's people. Because of that, uh, the ark was known as the Lord's footstool. The Lord's footstool. And we, we see that referred to in, in verse 7 of Psalm 132. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. And so in a, in a nutshell, the ark was symbolic of the Lord's presence among his people. This was an object of first importance. The, the, the worship practices of God's people in, in, in countless ways revolved around the Ark of the Covenant and the, the tabernacle, the tent in which it was found. And, and we see in 1 Samuel 4 that the Ark was captured and taken away by the Philistines after they defeated Israel, God's people, in battle. And as you can imagine, if, if the ark is this important to, the, to God's people and to their worship practices, then, then you can imagine that this was a devastating loss for God's people. It was, it was crushing. It was absolutely devastating because it was, it was symbolic of the Lord's very presence departing from his people. In fact, we read this in 1 Samuel 4. A, a, a woman says this, The glory has departed f- from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. And it was a presence of God among them. It was the glory of God in their midst that was the very thing that set them apart as God's people in the first place. And so for the glory of God, for the presence of God to depart from them would have been absolutely devastating. Now, it, it also caused some problems for the Philistines. And so if, if we read later in 1 Samuel 4, we, we see that after the Philistines captured it, the, the, the hand of the Lord was heavy upon the Philistines. And we see that their people broke out into tumors. And their people broke out in, in a panic as a result of this. You see, if, if somehow peace has been made between you and a holy God, then the nearness, then the presence of God isn't a threatening thing. But if you are an enemy of this holy God, then the nearness of his presence, it's a terrifying thing. And it's a, it, it, it's a dangerous thing. And it, it was just that for the Philistines. And so we see eventually the Philistines, they get rid of the ark. They return it to Israel. 
It's like a, a, a drive-by where they're like driving by, they open the door, they kick it out, and they, they head off into the sunset, leaving all their problems behind. And, and we see that it was taken to a place called Kiriath-Jerim, where it would remain, the ark, where it would remain for the next 20 years. This place, here's where the history lesson is going, this place, Kiriath-Jerim, is the same place that the psalmist is referring to in verse 6 of our psalm. When he says, Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jar. This is the same place that the Ark of the Covenant, after it was booted out the door by the Philistines, this is the very place that it was, that it was taken. It was the very place that it would remain, again, for for. 20 years. And it was in this place that David would once again find and take possession of the Ark of the Covenant. And it was David who would return the Ark to its proper place in Jerusalem. We, we read about this in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Now, David returning the ark to its proper place in Jerusalem was anything but was anything but a smooth process. The first attempt to move the ark to Jerusalem was we read done improperly and, and in fact Uzzah reached out and actually touched the Ark of the Covenant, something that was explicitly forbidden in God's law. It was a violation of God's commands. And so we see that he was, he was struck down. He fell dead. And so, three months later, David would have to try again to return the Ark to its proper place in Jerusalem. And three months later, we read that the Ark was, in fact, successfully returned to Jerusalem. And as, as you can imagine, this was an event that was, that was marked by all kinds of, of celebration. There were horns sounding, there was, uh, there was shouting and yelling, there was leaping and there was dancing. And we read this, 2 Samuel 6, 17, and they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Now, on the one hand, this very much seems to be the fulfillment of David's vow in verses 1 through 5 of our psalm, doesn't it? He has found a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. The ark has been returned to its proper place in the tent, in the tabernacle. On the other hand, though, David's end goal wasn't for the Lord's dwelling place to be a mere tent. David's ultimate desire was for something better than a, a, a temporary tent. He desired something that, was, something that was worthy of the Lord himself. And we know this because just a handful of verses later, just a handful of verses after 2 Samuel 6, 17, 
David tells his trusted friend Nathan that he wants to build a more worthy, a a permanent structure, a house for the Lord. You see, David desired to build a temple. And it doesn't say it explicitly here in our psalm. But when we read about the vow that David made, Here in Psalm 132, I don't get the sense that a tabernacle, that a mere temporary tent captures the fullness of what David had in mind either. He wanted a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. He wanted what verse 8 called a resting place. This was his passion. This was his obsession. And I think he was saying in a sense, I won't rest I won't sleep until I built a house of cedar as a dwelling place for the Lord and his ark. Well, if, if you know what happens next in 2 Samuel chapter 7, then you know that David never built that temple that he so desired for the Lord. David, David would never see the temple built. In fact. And that brings us to the second half of the psalm, to the promise of the Lord to David. The the, the tension at the end of those first 10 verses brings us then to verse 11, the Lord's promise to David. Let let me read this, this in its entirety, and then we'll continue on with the history lesson in 2 Samuel 7. We read that Psalm 132, verse 11, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. If your son keeps my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. I read that twice, didn't I? Just for emphasis. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her her, her priests I will clothe with salvation. Her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Now with, with this section of Psalm 132 in mind, let's read about what happens next in 2 Samuel 7. Remember, David has just told Nathan that he desires to build the Lord a house. And that's where we pick up the narrative, verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. And by the way, Nathan said, hey, that sounds good to me. The Lord be with you. You should do that. That night, though, the the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? If you remember, we we read through this section of 2 Samuel 7 when we were working through Psalm 127. So the word of the Lord comes to Nathan. He says, Nathan, go go say this to David. Would, Would you build me 
a house to dwell in? And then we see, skipping down to verse 10, the Lord says, I I will appoint a place for my people Israel. Notice, what was David's, what was his vow? What was his obsession? It was finding a what for the Lord, a place. And what does the Lord say? I will appoint a place for you. I will appoint a place for my people and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place. What David, David was obsessed. He was passionate about finding a dwelling place for the Lord. And the Lord says, let me give you a place where you can dwell so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. The Lord will make you a house. You see, it was David's desire. It was his promise. I think it was his dream to build a house for the Lord. And and hear me out. I, I don't think that David was being sinful in this desire at all. He desired to build a house worthy of the Lord and the Lord turns it around on him and says, no, you won't build me a house. But in fact, David, I will build you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And he will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so I pointed some of them out, but did you notice the similarities between Psalm 132, the second half, the Lord's promise to David? Did you notice the similarities between that and this, the Davidic covenant that we read about in 2 Samuel 7? The Lord, you see, he responds to the the promise made by David by making David a promise of his own. The Lord says, you're going to make a vow to me? How about if I make a vow to you? You, you want to build me a house? How, how about I build you a house? You want to make a place for me to dwell? I will make a dwelling place for you. And how about this as a bonus? I'll dwell there, I'll, I'll dwell there with you. I'll make your dwelling place my dwelling place. I will dwell in your very midst and I'll I'll raise up a son for you and I'll set him on your throne. And he's going to reign not just for a generation, but he will reign on the throne forever and I will give you bread to eat and I will clothe you with salvation. I will fill you with joy. Not only will I remember David as the psalmist asks in verse one of Psalm 132, but I will make a horn to sprout for him. This, this word horn, it's a symbol for power. I will make a horn to sprout for him. I prepared a light for him. I prepared a lamp for him. I will protect him from his enemies and his crown will shine. His crown will shine forever. Now, if we keep reading in 2 Samuel, we see that David's son, Solomon, would eventually construct 
that temple that his father so desired to build. And in a sense, it seems as if Solomon has become the fulfillment, not, not just for David's vow to the Lord, he built him a house, a place for him to dwell. But it seems as though Solomon might be a fulfillment of the Lord's promises to David. He set one of David's sons on his throne to establish his kingdom. And, and, and I think that Solomon is an initial fulfillment of these promises. But then, what happens to the temple that Solomon built? Do you know the story? Yeah, the, the Babylonians, not the, the Philistines this time, the Babylonians, they would lay siege to Jerusalem in around 586 or 587 B.C., you can read about it in the final chapter of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles where we're told they burned the house of God and they broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. You see, while Solomon might be the initial fulfillment of these promises, he isn't the full and final fulfillment of either one of them. the dwelling place that David so desired for the Lord, it laid in ruins in the wake of the Babylonians. And the ark, the ark was once again in enemy hands. God's people were either killed or led away into captivity. And Solomon, Solomon's story ends the way every man's story ends. He died. I imagine this was one of the psalms that the people of God would sing when they were released from captivity, captivity and allowed to return to Jerusalem to rebuild its walls, to rebuild the temple once again. This time it would seem without an ark to place in the most holy place. I imagine, I mean, just, just think about it. God's people ravaged the holy city, the place of promise, the place of God's dwelling, flattened, burned to the ground, carried away into exile for the better part of, of a century. Imagine the day when God's people returned, and, and imagine belting this song out at the top of your lungs. I imagine those pilgrims did so as, as they longed for the day when the Lord's promises to David would, would be fully and finally fulfilled. And one day, they would be. We read that the angel Gabriel would one day visit a young virgin woman named Mary. And this is his announcement. And behold, you will conceive in your womb 
and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. And then listen. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom, and of his kingdom, there will be no end. And later on in Luke chapter 1, Zechariah would prophesy saying, Blessed be the God, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a what of salvation? A horn of salvation. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Two pillars. Jesus is the full. Jesus is the final fulfillment of Psalm 132 and of the promises made both by David and by the Lord. Remember the hardships Jesus endured. Emmanuel, God with us. As he made his dwelling place among man, where he lived and died for our sins once again. Consider the risen Lord who ascended to the right hand of God and sent his spirit to indwell the heart of every believer. This time not making his dwelling place among man, but in the very heart of man. Jesus the son of David who sits on the throne of a kingdom that will go on forever and that will not end. He has clothed us with salvation. He is our source of inexhaustible joy and one day he will return to judge the living and the dead. And when he does, he will clothe our enemies with shame even as you and I are clothed with the pure, unstained clothes of his righteousness. So here's, here's what I think Psalm 132 helps us to do. I, I think that Psalm 132, it helps us to properly orient our hope on the one hand and our work on the other hand. This is, I think, the practical application. Other than, than just beholding the, the glory of God, other than beholding the character of God who makes such grand promises to us, I think it helps us to properly orient our hope and our work. Psalm 132 is a powerful reminder to us that our hope is not in the labor of human hands, but in the promise of a faithful God. Our hope is not in the labor of human hands, but in the promises of a faithful God. You see, our hope fuels our work in our obedience to God. That's what our hope does. It, it fuels our work. It, it fuels our obedience. As, as one pastor put it, obedience is not a stodgy plotting in the ruts of religion. This is never what obedience, this is never what good works were meant to be. He says, Alternatively, it is a hopeful race towards God's promises. That is what you and I are running right now. We're, we're, we're running a hopeful race towards God's promises. God's promises await us at the finish line. This was 
absolutely apparent in David's life. It was his trust in the Lord. It was, in his, it was his hope in the promises of God that fueled his passion to find a dwelling place for the Lord. But listen to this. While our hope does fuel our work, we must be careful that our work does not begin to fuel our hope. Does that make sense? It, it's important that our, that our work does not fuel our hope. You see, only one of the vows made in this psalm is worthy of our hope as God's people. And it, it wasn't David's vow. Our hope is not in the vow of a man to build a house for God. That is, that is not the vow in which our hope is found. Our hope is found in the second vow. We should set our hopes on the second vow. And this is an important reminder for us that we shouldn't set our hopes on either our own work or on the work of others. And this is especially important for us because we are a people who are drawn to heroes. We, we are, we're drawn to stories of exceptionalism, aren't we? We're drawn to, to strong leaders. But heroes, exceptional men and women and strong leaders, they're not worthy of our hope. And, and, and look, example after example after example of just that abound right now in, in our present day. Not, not just outside of the church, but inside the church. And so if you or I are not careful to set our hopes on the promises of God, but in, instead set our hopes on the work of of human hands, then we are bound and determined to be disappointed. We are bound and determined to be left wanting. We are bound and determined to be left despairing. Because they're, they're not worthy of our hope. They, they might be worthy of our emulation. It was Paul who said, follow me as I follow the Lord. I think David's devotion to and his passion for the presence and the glory of God is worthy of our emulation. We should seek to, to walk in that. It should, it should give kind of context to our own work, to our own obedience, but it's not worthy of our hope. It was fallible, it was finite, and it was insufficient. It's insufficient for our hope. And it was ultimately not David but the Lord who would redeem David's work and see even it through to completion. And it was the Lord who would make to David one of the greatest promises of all. And it's in Jesus Christ, our Lord, that the promises of Psalm 132 find their full, final, and perfect yes and amen. And I, I want to close with this, because the book of Revelation, the last book in our Bible, a book, by the way, that the, the women in the women's Bible study that's going to be starting up here in just a couple of weeks are going to set out to study together, it, it gives us a picture of what this is all going to look like. Revelation 21, 
John records, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. This should perk our ears in light of what we've been talking about. I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place. There's that There's that phrase again, the dwelling place of God is with man. What did David want to to make for the Lord but a dwelling place for God? And God says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Never again to be carried away. Never again to depart. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And so he steps back, right, on top of a high mountain so he can get a bird's eye view of this beautiful holy city descending. And then in verse 16, we see that the city lies four square. Its length, the same as its width. And he measured the city with, a, with his rod, 12,000 stadia, and its length and width and height are equal. Interesting. One of the details pointed out here is that New Jerusalem, as it descends from heaven, is a perfect cube. Do you know what else is a perfect cube? The Holy of Holies, the most holy place inside the tabernacle, the the place inside the temple where the ark would be placed. New Jerusalem has become the dwelling place for God. New Jerusalem has become his footstool. New Jerusalem is the place where God, where his presence will dwell for eternity. And we don't need a priest to make sacrifice for us every time we want to enter into God's presence. Why? Because our high priest has earned our way into the most holy place, Jesus. And it's in this most holy place where not only God makes his dwelling, but it's in this most holy place in New Jerusalem where you and I will dwell too, will dwell in the presence of our God and his kingdom will go on forever and ever. And Jesus will sit on the throne as our king forevermore also. This is our hope. This is how it all ends. This is how it all ends. This is the hope, brothers and sisters. That fuels our work as we leave today. This is the hope that fuels our evangelism, right? As, as, our, as our desire and our, our, our passion spills over, much like David's did. Our work, it, it's, it's not worthy of, of setting our hope upon, but these promises, they're worthy of our hope. Why? Because our, our God in heaven, He is a great promise keeper, and He will bring it to pass. Let's pray.
Father. We live in a world full of promises. The world, it's not just Big Brother. The world makes all kinds of promises to us that it, that it can't possibly keep. In fact, the world makes promises to us that it has no intention of keeping. Lord, not only do we need better promises, we need a better promise maker. Lord, and that's, that's you, Lord, we thank you for the promises of Psalm 132, of 2 Samuel 7. We thank you that you followed up David's promise to make you a dwelling place by a promise of your own, that you, that you promised that you would make him a dwelling place, a dwelling place for your people, that you would make him a house. You would set his son upon the throne, the son of David, Jesus, your son, and that his kingdom would would go on forever. He would reign over it forever. We thank you for these promises. And Lord, we thank you that you have brought them to pass and you will bring them to a full, final, and perfect fulfillment when Jesus returns once again. Lord, we long for that day. And until that day, Lord, would this hope sustain us. We ask in Christ Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.